Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's episode, we will discuss highlights from the May edition of Law Notes that involve issues ranging from family law to access to justice and spanning the Atlantic from Massachusetts to the UK. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal news here and abroad. Hi, Art. How are you doing? Okay. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I can can use a haircut, but... Yeah, that's wild, Art. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't had hair this long in a long time. I should let you know, I should have Timmy just shave it because he shaves his head, basically. You don't want to shave your head. Within weeks, it'll grow back. You have all that great hair. It's not like anybody sees us. Uh, so it's, uh, this is going from my living room to your kitchen? Is that? I'm looking at the wallpaper there. It looks a little like maybe it was a kitchen. <laughs> it's sleeping baby animals. Oh. <laughs> not kitchen. That's okay. rock you to sleep gently. Yeah. And you can see my fireplace in the back. I can. I'm assuming that doesn't work, right? Uh, no, my stereo is sitting in it. Um, you have a really big apartment, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. By New uh, York standards, so the quarantine it, isn't so bad. Right. Now we got a lot of room, and I'm a block away from, uh, from Hudson River Park, so I go out for long walks in the morning since the gym is closed. All right. Well, before we get started with the very first uh, case that we're going to talk about, I wondered if you would give us a little bit of a Supreme Court update. We've been sitting here on pins and needles waiting every day, refreshing as we hope the Supreme Court publishes something. And every day it's a big old nothing burger. So what what can you tell us about about the status of uh, the three cases in um, Title VII? Well, the three cases on Title VII, which were argued on October 8th, which was the second day of the term, I believe, and they are among a handful of significant cases that were argued uh, in 2019 that haven't been issued yet. But uh, at the time they were argued, there were some people predicting that we wouldn't see a decision until June. Uh, so, you know, we, they, they could come at any time. Uh, we've, we've had one development, a sad development, that Amy Stevens who is the plaintiff in the Harris Funeral Homes case, uh, passed away this week with kidney failure. Uh, And uh, so she will not get to see her victory or defeat, as the case may be. The EEOC was actually the the plaintiff in the case, and she intervened, uh, represented by the ACLU. So we're still waiting on that. And it's it's really important. Every month in Law Notes, we have cases in which how the Supreme Court decides that would affect the cases. Uh, Sometimes we have courts that are delaying ruling on motions to dismiss, waiting for the Supreme Court, uh, because uh, the defendant is raising the issue that Title VII doesn't cover sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination. They're not raising the issue in the Second and Seventh Circuits, obviously. Uh, uh, We have uh, on-bank circuit decisions, but in other circuits. And of course, uh, gender identity, we have a handful of circuits. The Sixth Circuit, in particular, in the Harris Funeral Homes case, but in other circuits where we have adverse precedent on these issues, going way back, uh, district judges. Some district judges are deciding based on the old precedent, saying, "Well, as of now, it's not covered." Other judges are agreeing with the plaintiff that they should delay 
in deciding whether to dismiss uh, until we get an opinion from the Supreme Court. So an awful lot turns on this. And even though uh, we just picked up another state, Virginia, uh, which now outlaws sexual south, orientation, right? gender, first one in the South, uh, first of the old Confederate states. And uh, we don't have much low hanging fruit there. I mean, there aren't a lot of other states where it's plausible that we could get it uh, by legislation. Maybe Pennsylvania at some point if we can flip the legislature. And then we have to remember that Title VII isn't a panacea for us because uh, we have a lot of small employers in this country who aren't covered by Title VII. So, uh, I mean, it would help us with state employment, but with state employment, of course, we have equal protection arguments to make. Uh, but it would certainly help us in, in small employers in the private sector. Yeah, that's, um, there are a lot of issues, and you brought up that uh, no matter what, even a win doesn't negate the urgent need to pass the Equality Act. It, we're talking about workplace fairness under Title VII, and you've talked about how courts look to Title VII to interpret Title IX and other statutes, but it doesn't change the fact that we would still need to pass that bill if we had a president right. in the White House and a Congress. Right. Also, because, because the Equality Act isn't just employment. It's not like the old Employment Non-Discrimination Act that we had being introduced for about 20 years. The Equality Act goes through the entire U.S. Code and adds sexual orientation and gender identity wherever it's been left out of the list on any statute, the Fair Housing Act, the Equal Credit Act, various other statutes. Uh, and also, it puts sex into the Civil Rights Act of 1964's public accommodations provision because yeah. sex, was not, sex was only added to Title VII when uh, the Civil Rights Act was under consideration. And so there is no federal law banning uh, sex discrimination in places of public accommodation. Right. We have to look to state laws for that. We're also waiting for one more thing from the court uh, that's been hanging fire for a long time. And that is the cert petition that was uh, filed uh, from the Washington Supreme Court decision uh, on the uh, the flower shop that wouldn't Arlene's do, flower Arlene's flowers it would every every new order list I immediately do a, a word search for Arlene's flowers <laughs> uh, and I was sort of surprised they didn't issue an order list this week uh, because I thought they were going to have a conference last Friday but evidently they didn't have a conference last Friday mm. uh, but they do have a conference scheduled for this Friday which means maybe next Monday and of course you'll be at the ready to update folks not right. only in the uh, Gay City News and in London. We'll do a podcast. We'll do a breaking news podcast. Well, let's go ahead and, and kick over to the cases that we do have decisions on uh, that we can dig into. The first is a complicated family law case. Uh, the petitioner here lives in the UK and is the intended and genetic father of a child. He and his same-sex partner entered into a gestational carrier agreement with a Massachusetts gestational carrier. And in April, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, which is the highest court in Massachusetts, ruled that a Massachusetts family court clearly has jurisdiction to establish the parentage of this child. Um, but technically, this is an adoption petition. An, an adoption petition. And the court did ask that the legislature take some action urgently to protect adoption, um, to make sure that it's a more efficient procedure because this was really drawn out. So Art, tell us about, try to unpack this case for us. Right, and the, uh, the names of the parties are not mentioned in the court's opinion. Uh, so there's a uh, gay male couple living overseas. I'm not sure where you got UK because uh, wasn't clear to me where they were living, but they're, oh, they, really? 
They live overseas. Okay. Uh, they contracted with a woman in Massachusetts to be their gestational surrogate, which means they had an egg that was donated, and then it was fertilized with the sperm of one of the men and implanted in the woman, and she bore the child. And their understanding all along was that uh, she was going to give up custody of the child to the sperm donor. Okay. And so uh, they actually uh, came to Massachusetts uh, for the insemination. And then she became pregnant. They went back home. And uh, she gave birth. And let's see, I've got the dates here. She gave birth on February 17th, 2018th, living in Weymouth, Massachusetts. And uh, shortly after the birth, uh, the father, the birth, the uh, genetic father and the birth mother ex executed a voluntary acknowledgement of paternity, recognizing that the father is the genetic father of the child, so there was no need to bring a filiation proceeding. But for the child to become a citizen of the father's home country, where the father now resides, uh, the father has to submit a birth certificate listing him as the father as part of the child's applicant for registration in the country where they live overseas. Uh, so in order to get that, they decided to do a petition for adoption. And uh, the, uh, the first petition they filed, the probate judge said, well, I don't have jurisdiction to issue, you know, you're, you want to adopt your own child? Uh, I don't have... Uh, because you, you've already uh, you know, signed a statement that you're the father. Uh, so she dismissed it for lack of jurisdiction. Uh, and uh, they weren't planning to hang around in Massachusetts. So they, uh, the child was taken. Uh, the mother released the child to the two men and they went back to their home country. But they filed the second petition. Uh, and in the second petition, it was dismissed because they said they had used an outdated form. I don't know how they could have gotten an outdated form. If they downloaded a form from the court's website, it should have been up to date. But at any rate, uh, they filed a third petition. And this time the judge once again uh, said, I don't have jurisdiction to grant this adoption. And this time the judge said, I don't have jurisdiction because they are not in Massachusetts. The child is not in Massachusetts. How do I have jurisdiction over these people? Uh, and so they appealed that uh, to the Massachusetts Court of Appeal, and it was uh, sua sponte sent directly up to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And the Supreme Judicial Court actually uh, issued an order back in January directing the probate judge to uh, uh, that, that, that they did have jurisdiction, and they said they would issue an opinion later. They decided not to delay it while they were doing an opinion, and the opinion came out. Uh, in April, as as you previously said. Uh, so the problem is the language of the statute. The statute says a person of full age may petition the probate court in the county where he resides for leave to adopt as his child another person younger than himself unless such other person is his or her wife or husband, brother, sister, uncle, aunt of the whole or half blood. If the petitioner has a husband or wife living competent to join in the petition, such husband or wife shall join therein. If a person not an inhabitant of this commonwealth desires to adopt the child residing here, the petition may be made to the probate court in the county where the child resides. Okay, so you see what the, the trial judge had a problem here. Uh, 
This guy does not live in Massachusetts. He does not reside in Massachusetts. He happened to be in Massachusetts at the time he filed the first petition, but he wasn't residing there. So that means he would have to be covered under the last paragraph, the last sentence, if a person not an inhabitant of this commonwealth desires to adopt a child residing here, the petition may be made to the probate court in the county where the child resides. Okay, the first petition was dismissed because the judge thought she didn't have jurisdiction to have someone adopt their own son. The next petition, this time she says, oh, and the child is residing with you overseas, so the child's not here. So I don't have jurisdiction. And so it really comes down to what does resides mean here. And the Supreme Judicial Court said uh, there was a prior case on the issue of what does reside mean. It's from 1950, Krakow against the Department of Public Welfare. And they decided a child resides at their domicile. And the domicile is the residence of their legal parent. At the time the petition was filed, the birth mother was the legal parent of the child because mm. her parental status would be canceled by the adoption. Yes. Uh, so even though the child was actually living with the father and his partner overseas at the time the third petition was filed, the child's domicile or residence was where the mother was. Mm. And so the court said, therefore, under the last sentence of the provision, uh, General Laws Chapter 210, Section 1, the court has jurisdiction. <laughs> so go ahead and decide if it's in the best interest of the child. And after all, the petitioner is the child's uh, genetic father, biological parent. So obviously, uh, you're not going to say that he's not qualified to be the parent of the child. And all this is just to get an adoption certificate that, uh, uh, that uh, produces, because when there is an adoption, a new revised birth certificate is issued showing the adopted parents as the parents on the birth certificate. Uh, so he's now going to have a birth certificate for the child with his name on it as a parent so he can register the child in uh, the country where he's living now and presumably his partner now is going to be able to uh, do a second parent adoption over there if that's a possibility. Uh, wow. Or if they're living in a country where they can marry, uh, if, if they're in the UK obviously they can get married. Yeah, I just checked to see if I had seen that somewhere online, and I think it's because the next story involves the UK that I that I yeah. that pumped into my head. That's um, possible. I'm wondering, you know, LGBT families face unique challenges in forming families because of outdated statutes and bad law. And so I'm wondering, did, you know, Pavan or Obergefell factor into this case, into the reasoning at all, or was no, it just because... statutory? because these guys aren't married to each other. So this case doesn't involve marriage. Uh, it involves adoption by a single adult. Uh, okay. And in fact, you, you recall when I was reading this from the statute, uh, if the petitioner is married and their spouse is qualified to be an adopted parent, that is they're old enough mm -hmm. and not otherwise disqualified, they have to join. That is, a married person cannot adopt the child in Massachusetts unless their spouse joins in. And obviously there are public policy issues here. Uh, I think part of the problem is uh, that they probably need a gestational surro surrogacy statute in Massachusetts that will clarify uh, how this is all handled procedurally and uh, in terms of the jurisdiction of the court and who can adopt the child.
Wow. Well, this is just one of several family law cases that are very complicated that you report out in Law Notes in, in this month's edition. Um, but thanks for giving us that update. Why don't we take a little break and then we'll come back and we really will be in the UK. All right, we're back. Alfred McConnell is a transgender man living in the UK. He became pregnant and gave birth and subsequently lost his legal challenge not to be named as the mother on the child's birth certificate. As uh, the author of this piece, Eric Worsthorn wrote in Law Notes, the court unsympathetically characterized McConnell's application to be an attempt to construe the word dog as cat and reject the argument that mother should be replaced with parent or gestational parent as improper judicial legislation. Um, McConnell's journey to parenthood is actually the subject of a uh, documentary film called Seahorse, but uh, the best legal news is obviously from art. So why don't you update us on, on this case? And, and I think it's like male seahorses give birth or something like that. Uh, huh. So, so at any event, uh, so McConnell, uh, as you said, uh, transgender man. He transitioned when he was 22 years old, mm -hmm. and uh, he began taking hormones. Uh, so he was still capable of becoming pregnant if he went off the testosterone for a while, and he wanted to have a child that was his biological child uh, and so he decided to do that he uh, they cut down the testosterone uh, uh, level so that he was able to uh, become pregnant uh, he got uh, donated sperm and uh, so he is the biological parent of his child and uh, when he gave birth oh also we should mention that uh, that the UK has a gender recognition act passed in 2004 in response to a ruling by the European uh, Court of Human Rights. And under this act, uh, he gets, when they decide that he has transitioned, uh, a certificate of the gender of the person. And uh, under Section 9 of the Gender Recognition Act, uh, that becomes their gender for all purposes. That is, the acquired gender is now their legal gender. So at the time he gave birth, his legal gender was male. But when he wanted to register the birth and get a birth certificate, uh, he was told by the registry office that he has to be listed as the mother because he gave birth to the child. And because the child was not conceived with his sperm, but with his egg. <laughs> so he is therefore the biological mother, even though he is, uh, for all practical purposes, he, and for legal purposes, he's a man. And he says, well, you know, uh, this doesn't make any sense especially because they said he didn't have to use his dead name. You know, transgender people who transition refer to their former name as their dead name mm -hmm. uh, because that person doesn't exist anymore. Right. And they said, no, you list your current name. You list the name, your legal name at the time you gave birth. So uh, on the birth certificate, it's going to say Alfred McConnell, mother. Yeah. And, and uh, the court rationalized this by saying, well, uh, the state, the government has an interest in making it possible for the child to know who his mother is. The child is a son. So the child should know who his mother is. And uh, his mother is Alfred McConnell. That is, Alfred McConnell is the person who gave birth to him. And as far as we're concerned, that's a mother, the person who gives birth. Jeez. 
Now, why can't they just put the term parent there? And they said, well, we can't do it. That would be legislating because yeah. there's a statute that prescribes what is the content on the birth certificate. So if you want to have the birth certificates changed, uh, also there was a provision uh, that uh, seems to have sunk his case uh, that uh, section 9.2 of the Gender Recognition Act says that a full gender recognition certificate does not affect things done or events occurring before the certificate was issued. And uh, later on, it says that it doesn't affect uh, the parental status of the individual. And I think they're referring to situations where someone who was already a parent transitions. And the fact that they have transitioned doesn't affect their parental relationship to their children. Uh, that seems to be what the intent of that was. But this court says that means that the gender recognition certificate that he got doesn't affect his parental status at all. His parental status is determined by whether he gave birth to the child or whether he was the inseminator. So, and oh. this is this is the United uh, Kingdom Court of Appeal, right. not the Supreme Court. So he's planning to appeal this one. Yeah, uh, it's it's a, a difficult case uh, for the court to sort out. You know, the theme that we're getting here is uh, outdated statutes. Um, yeah, yeah, statutes that were passed without reference to contemporary LGBT existence. Wow. All right. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about, um, a, a, well, we mentioned that uh, one of the cases we've already talked about uh, did proceed as a doe. And we have the next case that involves that very issue. So let's take a break and we'll talk about that. All right, we're back. The next duo of cases involves two plaintiffs who wanted to proceed anonymously. The first we're going to discuss is a case involving a transgender plaintiff whose petition to remain a doe was denied in a decision that could result in backlash and possibly violence. The second case involves a gay HIV positive plaintiff who won. Here, the plaintiff claims that he was fired by the US Postal Service because of his sexual orientation and HIV status Talk about these two cases, Art, and why it's so important for uh, folks to be able to proceed as a doe. Okay, well, this is uh, very interesting that these two cases would come out in the same month. Uh, and the issue is that under the federal rules of civil procedure, it says that the complaint is supposed to list the names of the parties mm. and uh, that the case is to be prosecuted in the name of the actual plaintiff. Uh, so the federal rules seem to say you can't proceed anonymously, but the courts have actually carved out an exception. They say it's, it's only for really extraordinary cases where there is a very, very good reason, a really strong justification, uh, because generally the courts are supposed to be open. The presumption is that litigation takes place out in the open and uh, it's a matter of public record and the public has a right to know. Not that the public is busy sitting at their computers reading all the advance sheets and everything. <laughs> and the public is generally oblivious to everything except the really big deal cases from the Supreme Court or you know, a major uh, ruling striking down a controversial statute or something. But generally, I mean, this, these are run-of-the-mill discrimination cases. I don't think there's any particular public interest in them. Right. But the problem is, and it's a problem that I have seen uh, as the editor of Law Notes going back almost 40 years now, uh, every now and then, 
out of the blue, I get a communication from someone saying, can you please take my name off the internet? You reported about my case 15 years ago, and now when I apply for a job and someone does a Google search, what comes up? Your article that outs me as gay or trans or whatever, or HIV positive, it, mainly they've been HIV positive cases. Uh, and uh, one of the things we do uh, is on a lot of the asylum cases and reporting them on law notes, although the name of the party usually appears in the title of the case, it's just the last name. And we only refer to them throughout our article as the petitioner or the plaintiff mm. uh, because they are very concerned if they lose their case and they're uh, returned back to their home country and people can do a search online and they can find our article describing their case. Of course, their case is a matter of public record, but at least we try to minimize that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, the point is... Here, hold on. My dog is having a field day. <laughs> That's, you know... People, especially with the internet, this wasn't as big an issue before the internet, but, but with the internet, people are touchy about uh, what people can find out about them online. Sure. I and, mean, come on, Art, don't you do a Google search whenever you, like, we're interviewing somebody or maybe meeting yeah. them? You... Well, due diligence when you're doing hiring. Many employers now routinely do sure. Google searches on job applicants. Uh, yeah. and, and so... Being able to proceed anonymously is important if there's information about yourself that you don't want to be the first thing that people see when they Google your name. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition, uh, you know, we're talking about someone who's HIV positive. We're talking about someone who's trans, uh, someone who's transgender, who has transitioned, who has gotten a, a new birth certificate, new driver's license, new passport. They're now living in there uh, as the UK court referred to it acquired gender and that's their gender. And uh, why should they be outed anytime anyone Googles their name mm. and sees this case in which they're suing because they were discriminated against due to their gender identity. I mean, that's outing them. And we have a history of violence against transgender people in this country. In fact, uh, anyone who's been you know, tracking the news from uh, LGBT media sources online knows that there have been several horrendous murders of transgender people just over the, the time that we've all been uh, sequestered in our homes because of the coronavirus. Yeah. So uh, it's very important for transgender people to be able to control who knows that they're transgender. Uh, and it's very important for people because there is still, and we see it in the cases, there's still significant discrimination against people who are HIV positive. So, uh, and I think in the, the second case, the Postal Service case, uh, Doe versus Brennan, uh, I think the fact that the guy is gay wasn't the big issue. It was really the yeah. fact that he was HIV positive because uh, he's, he describes himself uh, in his uh, complaint as he was an out gay man, openly gay, known to be gay by everyone in his workplace. He's not like closet about being gay, but being HIV positive, that's a different thing to have that in the public record and to have that where anyone can find it with a Google search and, or you know, on Westlaw Lexus or even uh, a scholar Google is you don't even have to subscribe to an expensive service like Westlaw or Lexus to find court cases. You can find them free on scholar.google.com. So uh, both of these cases, there are petitions to be able to proceed anonymously in both cases. There is no opposition by the defendant. Uh, so in the first case, Doe versus Gray, this is from the Northern District of Indiana. And this was actually uh, 
pending before the U.S. magistrate judge who was dealing with pretrial motions. And the plaintiff uh, filed a motion uh, to proceed anonymously. Uh, we're not told what the case is about, but it's likely that it's a gender identity discrimination case because it's in federal court. Uh, and the court says that the plaintiff's transgender identity is, quote, the subject of this suit. That's all that's said about the merits. Uh, so clearly their gender identity is an issue in the case. Uh, and he says he or she, I guess he, recognize, uh, identifies as a male because he's asking to be John Doe, uh, says that uh, he and his female partner if their names were used in the opinion, uh, in the caption, you know, the, the kind of stuff that shows up on uh, computer search, they would be outed. He, he would be outed as trans. She would be outed as the partner of a trans man. And they could be subjected to harassment, to violence, etc. cetera. Uh, and the magistrate judge says, even though the motions are opposed, Quote, the court cannot, however, summarily grant plaintiff's verified motion based solely upon defendant's lack of objection because this is public policy that's uh, evidenced by the federal rules of civil procedure that you have to sue in your own name. And what I'm looking for is for this plaintiff to tell me that there is a very specific threat to him if he's out in this way a generalized possibility of future harm isn't enough. Mm. Isn't enough, he says. Wow. He says, the plaintiff failed to present any authority, quote unquote, for the proposition that a generalized possibility of future harm from public disclosure of the plaintiff's gender identity would adequately rebut the presumption that parties' identities are public information. And uh, this is uh, Magistrate Judge Michael Goach, Sr., Okay. And Judge, Judge Goat says, in cases where this court has granted leave to proceed with anonymity, the relator has cited the appropriate rule, relevant case law, and has provided information about prior incidents or potential threats with sufficient specificity to allow this court to draw an appropriate legal conclusion. And one of the cases he cites on that is the Hively case. And I think the reason he cites the Hively case is you know where the Hively case arose. That's the Seventh Circuit sexual orientation discrimination case. It was from a community college in South Bend. Right. Where does this case arise? South Bend. Mm. So it's the same district. And Hively sued in her own name. Now, she wasn't trans. She was a lesbian. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he gives that as an example of someone, you know, a sexual orientation case that didn't seek anonymity. Uh, and I think it's sort of ironic that it's in South Bend because South Bend has a local ordinance that bans gender identity discrimination. Because guess who was the mayor of South Bend until relatively recently? Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg. <laughs> yes. So, you know, very interesting. But uh, the, the court says, no, no, you didn't give me enough specific information that there was a specific threat to you of some sort uh, of danger. And I think that's wrong. I think, you know, the, the, the documentation of ongoing threats to the well-being of transgender people is such that uh, requiring them to sue in their own name, I mean, if they want to, fine, but requiring them to do so, I don't think is appropriate. But this is what the magistrate says. By, by comparison, in Doe versus Brennan, 
Uh, this is a decision by District Judge Joseph Leeson in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, that's Philadelphia, on April 27. Uh, he was an out gay man working at a branch of the Postal Service. Uh, he says the reason for his discharge, the stated reason for his discharge, a physical altercation with a coworker, never took place. It was fabricated by the coworker who wanted to get him fired. That he was actually prosecuted based on the coworker's charge and acquitted by the court. Uh, so he's suing, uh, claiming he was uh, inappropriately discharged, and he asked to be uh, listed as John Doe on the case. He says, uh, I'm gay, I'm HIV positive, uh, I, uh, I feel that, uh, that should not, my being HIV positive shouldn't be spread on the public record and everything else. It's obviously part of the case because that's one of the reasons that uh, he claims he was discriminated against. Mm -hmm. And uh, the court said, yeah, you're right. Uh, you're, you're entitled to this extraordinary relief of being able to sue anonymously uh, because uh, this is like private information and there's no public interest in learning it. And it could be harmful to you in the future. Uh, so this judge grants the, grants the motion. Uh, I think there should be a generalized rule uh, it, it isn't that all gay or trans people or all HIV positive people have to sue anonymously, but they should have the option. Hmm. Uh, because there's, there's no reason that the price of getting civil justice, if you have a valid claim, is to out yourself to the world. Yeah. That should be someone's, someone's own decision as to who knows and who has reason to know. Of course, there was a condition on this. Uh, Judge, Judge Leeson, uh, noted that the uh, post office asked for two conditions. One, that he conduct his depositions under his own name and testify under his own name in the case. And secondly, that if there's any change of circumstances that would justify requiring his name on the case, that the judge is willing to reconsider the issue. And the judge says, okay, I'll do it based on those conditions. So in this case, John Doe gets to sue the Postal Service as a John Doe. Huh. Well, Art, do you have a of note for us? Yeah, uh, it's it's actually the lead story from this issue, but just to, to mention it, uh, as I'm doing my Westlaw and Lexus searches on a regular basis, finding cases for law notes, what has been flooding the courts over the past few weeks are lawsuits by people who are being held in detention or are in jail uh, who are frightened, as you wouldn't believe, over the possibility of contracting COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, they say it's impossible to maintain social distance in prison. They're not giving us protective gear or anything. We eat in a dining hall with like hundreds of people. We take showers, all this kind of stuff. Right. Let us out of here. Uh, and uh, there is a class action uh, that has been certified by Judge Jesus J. Bernal Central District of California, that's in Riverside, uh, was brought by uh, a whole bunch of uh, people in ICE detention. These are refugees who are being held. Uh, the only thing that you could say about them as a reason for them being held is that they came into the United States without documentation. Uh, so they're being held while their immigration cases are being processed. And they say the conditions under which we are being held are uh, not conducive to our health. 
because uh, you know even though some of us are actually in detention centers where there have no not been any diagnosed cases yet some of us are in detention centers where there are diagnosed cases and th those diagnoses include the guards yeah. not just the uh, people who are being held in detention so it's possible that a guard is bringing it in from outside just due to some exposure and uh, the people who have sued say they should be released because of either heightened risk of severe illness and death if they contract COVID-19 or that they have disabilities that place them at such risk. And the judge agreed to certify a class on that. And uh, the issue is what procedures are gonna be used by ICE to determine who fits in those categories and should be entitled to be released into the community to await adjudication. The, the court was especially sensitive to the idea that most of these people, the only thing they've done that you can criticize them for is to come in without appropriate, without a visa. Right. You know, these are undocumented people uh, or they wouldn't be in detention. But uh, you know, this litigation is going on all over the country. Uh, Bill Rold uh, wrote this article uh, because he deals with our prisoner cases uh, and uh, he discusses a few after uh, pointing out about the uh, provisional certification of two nationwide subclasses of detainees in custody of ICE. Uh, he mentioned some other district court cases, either granting or denying uh, requests by prisoners, uh, usually <clears throat> prisoners who are HIV positive, uh, who said, no, I'm really in danger here. Uh, and uh, the uh, position of the prison authorities tends to be, yeah, but you're getting medication. Your HIV status is under control. But there's one case where the person may have, uh, you know, they're, they're taking the medication under control, but they have a high viral load. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe that person, and these are all people who are in for nonviolent stuff or who have been serving right. a long sentence and are now older and uh, more susceptible to uh, uh, problems with, uh, with COVID-19. So this is being done on a district court by district court basis, but it's interesting that a class action has been provisionally certified against ICE. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have to keep our eyes on that and see how that develops. Another okay. interesting little factoid is that Judge Bernal uh, is the judge who issued a preliminary injunction against the transgender military policy of the Trump administration. One of mm. the four district judges that uh, issued those in 2017 after Trump tweeted his policy banning mm. transgender service. and. We should mention almost every month in one notes now, we get a new decision, usually from Judge Peckman out in Seattle mm -hmm. on some contested discovery point in that uh, continuing litigation. Wow. Uh, and uh, we all hope that if uh, Mr. Trump ceases to be president uh, in January of 2021, that whoever, it's Joe Biden, that right. they will rescind that right away and those cases will be mooted out except for any damages that people might be entitled to for their treatment under the uh, policy. So outrageous to have it seesaw back and forth as a uh, discriminatory policy when people are, tr are trying to serve uh, their country and make a sacrifice. It's outrageous. There's another new development that people should hear about uh, that guess what is coming up for a new round of decision? Whether, uh, whether the recordings of the Prop 8 trial are gonna be released because I just, I'm on the notification list from the court. Right. Uh, so there's briefing going on now over whether finally they can be released, uh, noting that we're coming up on like a major anniversary. 
yeah. on this. I mean, this 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 uh, case was decided, I think, in 2010, 2011, something like that. So you know, it's been a decade now, and yeah. uh, the, that recording is still under wraps. That's that's crazy. Which is weird because the transcript has been available, and it's even been the basis of a play right. and a radio right. and yeah. a YouTube thing, people doing dramatic readings, but. Uh, the, the media people who are petitioning for this, and of course the plaintiffs who are petitioning for this, they say they want people to be able to hear the actual cross-examination of these experts. And right. that is what the uh, proponents of Prop 8 are fighting against. Right. It's crazy that you contrast that with the cases where people are facing violence and seeking to remain anonymous and there's a yeah. public interest in knowing their name versus these scientific, you know, fake science that that people are propping up to say that same-sex couples shouldn't be able to uh, get married, uh, it seems to be a stark uh, contrast there. And that is a legal issue that is moot at the moment. Uh, you know, there, there are certain states that would like to get that question up before the uh, current version of the Supreme Court. Huh. I moot at the moment it. is uh, an interesting, it, it might be a musical, Laura. <laughs> I think someone should write an opera based on the trial. Those cross-examinations can be very dramatic. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> starring Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> well, there is there are two operas about uh, Ginsburg and Scalia. Yeah. Uh, have you seen them? I've seen one of them. It was staged down at, uh, at Pace University's uh, downtown auditorium several years ago. And yeah. there's excerpts of another on a recording uh, produced by the record label run by Justice Ginsburg's son, James Ginsburg, out of Chicago. Yeah. And his wife is a soprano, and she recorded a whole song cycle about Justice Ginsburg. And right. then to round out the CD, there is a segment from one of the uh, Ginsburg Scalia operas. Which I remember when you showed me, when you purchased that album, I think it was, it wasn't too long ago, maybe. No, it was ago. celebrating her 25th anniversary on the court. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that would have been. Uh, maybe you know, I should replace our uh, theme song on this podcast with something from that recording. Well, it is under copyright, so you would have to get permission. <laughs> <laughs> should I write directly to Ruth? <laughs> no, yeah, James has the copyright. Gotcha, okay. He's uh, a delightful fellow. He's also a oh, lawyer, really? by the way. Yes. Yeah. Huh, interesting. Um, all right, Art. Well, please take care of yourself. Are you, are you doing anything? Are you watching anything on TV these days or just reading legal news? Uh, oh, no. I, I work my way through DVDs of interesting series. And I, I uh, recently uh, got started on an old series uh, with, I mean, you look at the list of the stars on this and it's like it brings back memories. Uh, Richard Chamberlain, <laughs> for example. Uh, and music. You know, it's it's called Centennial. It's based on a novel by James Michener. It's uh, like eight episodes, each about an hour and a half long. It's the history of this town from in Colorado, or the, the area in Colorado from the late 18th century when it was Indian territory mm -hmm. until the, the mid 20th century. And uh, the characters, you know, uh, develop over time and new characters. It's really very interesting, and it's so much. You put me to sleep, Art. <laughs> it's it's so much fun because some of these actors, like like one of the uh, actors is Pernell Roberts, and if okay. if you were a Gunsmoke fan back in the old days, well, that's you're too young to remember. But Gunsmoke was like one of the most popular 
TV, Western TV series, and Pernell Roberts was the oldest son of this rancher who's, you know, and he appears in this as a general who's sent out to try to calm down the Indians who are very resentful of the settlers moving in and, uh, you know, hunting buffalo in competition with them and everything. It's really, it's, it's really uh, very interesting, and a lot of the cast members will be familiar to people of my generation who were watching TV in the 60s and 70s. Huh. So, well, interesting uh, I don't series. know if you sold me on that one. <laughs> I think I'll pass. Well, I, like, um, I like historical costume drawings. I know. You know. Hey, have you been watching or have you watched uh, Hollywood with Patti LuPone? No. I haven't gotten fantastic. around to that yet. I mean, that's loosely based on uh, the true story about the uh, guy that ran a drive-in that was also kind of a prostitution ring. Right. I have his book, which I haven't read yet. There's a documentary about him. I saw it. It's fantastic. Which I, I saw also like, back in the days when we used to go to movie theaters. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. So I ordered the book, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Oh, all right. Well, tell me, tell me how that is. All right, Art. Take care. Okay. Thanks for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast are available on iTunes and on legal.podbean.com. Thank you so much for listening.